Our Father, we thank you tonight that we are here in the middle of the week, and we are in health to be here, how you have blessed us in so many different ways. Many in our midst are sick and unable to be here, some with sickness that is of a very serious nature. So help us never, our Father, to take for granted the many expressions and blessings of life. We thank you that you have not left us clueless as to how to manage the money that you've entrusted to us, that you've given us a plumb line in Scripture that as we study it and allow our minds to be renewed and apply it, that we can find your blessing as we obey your word. So help us tonight as we continue our study and our exploration of Scripture. Be with us. Help me to share the things that you put on my heart to say, and I thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in session one, which I hope and plan by God's grace to finish tonight. And session one deals with uh, stewardship and uh, the whole process of stewardship as it relates to especially giving. Just so you know where we've been so far, Roman numeral one after the introduction. And in the introduction, I uh, gave some sobering thoughts because I believe that we are headed sometime, God only knows when, but it is impossible to stay on the course that our state, our national government is on, and even many of our state's government, without at some point having to pay a huge, huge price. And even one of the national billionaires came out last week and said the same thing, Warren Buffett. And he said, we are living in a pumped-up, phony economy. And I think he's absolutely right. Um, and so I want, I think in this time of plenty, much like God gave Joseph a time of plenty to prepare for thinner times, I want us to be prepared. I don't know how long they will last, but I want us to be prepared and to be ready for when that time comes, because unless our government does something radical, and there seems to be no motivation to do so, we are headed for deep, deep trouble. With that said, after the introduction, we began by thinking our way through stewardship, and we began with the biblical theology of money. We saw the very first expression of giving in the Bible is God Himself. He gave us physical life, and He breathed into man the breath of life. And it's on that basis that we are able to return gifts back to God. We saw the very first recorded gift in the Bible as Cain and Abel brought their offerings to the Lord. And there are some timeless lessons in that Abel is still teaching us today and that he came on the basis of faith, on the basis of revealed revelation. Then we began in the last three sessions, Roman numeral two, where we began to discuss God's vehicle to support the Lord's work is the tithe. Uh, we looked at the fact that tithing involved a definite proportion, that tithing was not purely an Old Testament act done by Israel alone, but it had full application for the church today. As for some 1,900 years of church history, Every pastor, every born-again Christian, every theologian held to that. So the idea that tithing is only today for Israel is rather a new teaching. Um, we looked at a somewhat minority view amongst those who say tithing does not apply. Some would say, well, it was not 10%, it was 13% or even 23%. And we went through the passages where they came through that and looked at them contextually and saw, no, that's not what they're saying at all. But even if they were, it would make no difference because tithing was part of God's eternal law ever before he gave the law through Moses. Tithing was taught prior to Moses. It was taught by Christ himself in the New Testament. 
And we saw that it was not contrary to the grace of God, but it is the grace of God that undergirds all that we do. That brings us to Roman numeral two, God's principal place to give the tithe is the local church. We're on page 30 of your handouts here, page 30. Uh, First, uh, we want to begin by stating here on point A that tithing involves a definite place. Tithing involves a definite place. The prophet Malachi, or Malachi, my Italian friends say, Malachi, uh, Malachi, he taught in Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Now, the storehouse in those days, of course, was located at the temple. It was the place where tithes were literally stored. And I gave you two passages, one from the Chronicles and one from Nehemiah, where there's referenced in the temple actual rooms where the tithes would be stored, kind of like we store money in a bank. In Second Chronicles, for instance, then Hezekiah commanded them to prepare rooms in the house of the Lord, and they prepared them. They faithfully brought in the contributions and the tithes and the consecrated things. It was here they stored all the food, so to speak, in order to sustain the work of the Lord. They brought the whole tithe into the storehouse, indicating they did not spend the tithe for whomever or whatever they wanted. It wasn't up to them how to designate God's tithe. God had a principal place in which to do it. They did not use it to care for a sick aunt or uncle. They did not use it on their next-door neighbor. Rather, they brought it into the storehouse. Christians, unfortunately, sometimes make excuses by saying that they're giving their tithe to their nephew to send them to a Christian school or maybe to buy materials for a Bible study or some other personal, quote, ministry project. While such endeavors are certainly admirable, using Scripture as our guide, this is not what is to be done with God's tithe. I believe today that the storehouse is not the temple, but the local church, the local assembly, or what we may call the temple of believers. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, if anyone destroys the temple of God, and there the term temple is not used of an individual, though it is used that way in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, but it is used of the corporate local assembly. If someone tries to come in and destroy the local assembly, he's going to have to deal with God himself. Six, we must remember that for 1,900 years after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., that was a prophesied event, I think most of you know. Jesus foretold it in Mark 13 and Matthew 24, that the temple would literally be destroyed and not one stone would stand upon another. For 1,900 years after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, there was no other place in the local church to give God's tithe to. Sometimes people ask, well, as a Christian, is giving to a religious or an organization the same as giving to the local church? And it's a legitimate and it's a fair question that you need to ask and answer for yourself. To answer, one must first recognize that a parachurch organization is not a church. And so the prefix para, which means either beside or alongside, it's actually from Greek, it means beside or alongside. The parakletos, the Holy Spirit, he comes alongside of us. Um, So uh, to answer, one must first recognize that it's not a church, and then by definition, a parachurch ministry is a Christian faith-based organization 
which carries out its mission, usually independent of local church oversight. Not always, but most often they carry it out independent of a local church oversight. The parachurch ministry is one that seeks to come alongside the local church, sometimes providing that which the church is less able to provide on its own. There are certain functions today of particular parachurch organizations that one times were being carried out by local assemblies, but today by dedicated organizations. Uh, for instance, uh, we've been giving to the Bakuna people uh, to give them three Old Testament books and some New Testament books, and now the Jesus film. Uh, 400 years ago, all Bible translation was done via local churches, and there were scholars that gathered in different local churches. But as time progressed and more Bible translation began to unfold, people began to see the need to have some organized, uh, concerted efforts to carry out Bible translation. So Wycliffe, for instance, is one particular parachurch kind of organization. Now, if we said, well, Community Bible Church is going to provide a translation for the Bakuna people, how many of you speak Bakuna? <laughs> now, Bakuna, that's not a real people. That's a pseudonym because we cannot give their real name because they're a persecuted people and for security reasons. But I promise you, I don't think anyone here in this room knows that particular language and dialect for which it's being translated. So the concept can be helpful. The concept of the, the parachurch ministry was known to the first century church, was unknown to the first century church, and therefore it's not mentioned in Scripture. It's a recent phenomena in the history of the church. So, it's, of course, it's not mentioned in Scripture. There are both pros and cons to parachurch ministries. Pros and cons. On the pro side, parachurch ministries can accomplish some things many local churches cannot since the average church has 80 or fewer members. It was 100, it's dropped to 80 in the last five years. The average church in America has 80 people. On the negative side, parachurch groups have no such biblically sanctioned structure, and so typically they are independent of local church oversight. The New Testament makes it clear that the appointed custodians of the faith are now elders. It was once the apostles and prophets and elders, but now the apostles are not here, and the prophets in the truest sense, in the foretelling sense, are no longer here. So God has commissioned elders to guard the faith. They're the custodians of the faith, or elders, who meet certain qualities in spiritual maturity to whom God has entrusted to safeguard the faith and practice of the local church. There are qualifications, and unfortunately, many times the church is weak because the church does not take the qualifications seriously. While most parachurch ministries have some sort of board of directors that establish and oversee the direction of the ministry, these most often follow business models, not the biblical model for church leadership. And there's real problems in that. And we are seeing these problems really grow and come to the surface even in the last few years. For instance, World Vision, that is an organization that has been geared and focused on feeding hungry people around the world. As you know, about maybe 18 months ago, they came out and they decided that they were going to allow uh, homosexual gay people 
uh, serve on their staff. Well, the board decided that. Well, Christians across America came unglued and said, you better not do that, and then they had second thoughts. But what does that tell you? It tells you it lacked spiritual leadership and qualifications to guard them as an organization, because if all you're going to do is feed people and not give them the gospel, then you send them on a full stomach to hell. So God gives us a responsibility not just to care for sometimes physical needs, but to feed them. More recently, um, Bethany Adoption Service. Some of you in this church have used them. They are the single largest Christian adoption service in the United States. Last month, they decided that because they wanted to continue to receive government funds, that they would uh, place children in gay homes with two men or two women. They had never done that before. Now, there's another Christian adoption organization called New Hope Adoption Center, and they refuse to do that. They're taking the government to court. But of course, whenever you take federal funds, you get in a mess. And so it's just best never to take federal funds because as soon as you dip into that, you come under federal control. Um, the parachurch organization that had a phenomenal impact in my own life and that I served with for 12 years, Campus Crusade for Christ, renamed Crew. Last summer, their national staff training, they had what I would consider a very liberal United Methodist woman pastor speak to thousands of staff. And they're unfortunately going to duplicate that this summer with another woman pastor whom I'm not sure is even a believer when I read her bio and what her ministry is all about. So when you have a board maybe that is not theologically grounded, you run into real problems. I was just speaking with a missionary who's been in the mission field for 30-some years, and he, he asked me, well, what does the Bible teach about women pastors? I said, well, you need to know because how you're going to perform, and he's in Western Europe, is very important. Who are you going to, you know, are you going to diminish the role that God has given to women by giving them a role that God hasn't given to women? That's what you're doing. So those are the pros and cons of sometimes parachurch ministry. God refers to the local church in 1 Timothy 3.15, number 17, as the pillar and foundation of the truth. As the local church builds up the members who are gifted by God to do the work of the ministry. That's what they're engaged in, the work of the ministry. He gave some as apostles, and there he's not dealing with the office, but the gift, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors slash teachers. Why? To equip people to do the work of the ministry. Added to that, parachurch ministries often have the luxury of foregoing what I would call the dirty work that they find uncomfortable, like marriage family problems, marriage and family problems, exercising church discipline, helping sick people, uh, dealing with death, grieving, just a host of issues. Oh, no, we have a specialized ministry. And I've had guys tell me who are in parachurch ministries, yeah, I used to be a pastor. He said, I just, I don't like all the things I had to do as a pastor. That's real life. And God calls local churches to meet that need. 
Local church ministry, on the other hand, is real life from the nursery to the nursing home. And unlike a parachurch, it's for all and not just certain groups based on age or profession or class or education. One of the elders, when I first came to Community Bible Church, thought I was going to be very excited when he told me the average age was 31. I said, I'm not excited about that. That's very unhealthy. What that represents is an unhealthy model, that somewhere you've dropped your responsibilities in reaching a broad spectrum of people. Older men, older women are assumed to be a part of the local church in Titus 2 because they're supposed to be teaching the next generation. Since God gives all His instruction in the New Covenant for the support of the local assembly, we should place our emphasis where God places His. That's just common sense. It's biblical sense. In addition, we are instructed in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 in verse 2, on the first day of every week, he's writing to a local church, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper that no collections be made when I come. Under the new covenant, the first day of every week is Sunday because we worship on the Lord's day in honor of the resurrection of Christ. We don't worship on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday. Of, though we will in the millennial reign of Messiah go back to worshiping on the seventh day. The prophets teach that. Of course, this presupposes that we are with God's people on the Lord's day in order to obey this command. Interestingly, the word save is the Greek word. I've transliterated it here for you, thesorizo. It's translated somewhat woodenly, but in some ways magnificently in the King James, in store. It's a little wooden, people aren't sure what that means, but it's really keying off the nuance of the Greek. The word save, translated in store in the King James, is the same word in noun form for storehouse. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse in the Septuagint. Some words are elucidated for us when we read the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, because most Jews, of course, lost their ability to speak Hebrew, so they had a Greek translation. It's called LXX in the margin of your Bible. Many times it will give you the rendering of the Septuagint. And by the way, when you're reading your New Testament and there's an Old Testament quotation and it reads a little bit differently, typically it's because that author in the New Testament is quoting the LXX, the Septuagint. Not only are we instructed to give where we gather, but in addition, every example of New Testament instruction is directed to the local church. In light of these differences, we need to ask, should we give to parachurch ministries? As mentioned above in the Apostle Paul's day, they did not have the unique phenomenon that has developed in the last 150 years of church history. The whole idea of the, the, the parachurch is, for the most part, 150 years old. You might find one example 162 years ago, but for the most part, the parachurch ministry started about 150 years ago, and most of the parachurch organizations we have in the world today started in the last 100 years. 150 years ago, there weren't mission agencies for the most part. It was all done through the local church, and local churches gathered together, and they pooled funds 
Um, that's how the Southern Baptist Convention started. They began to realize, oh, we need to send someone to you know, Russia to share the gospel, but we don't have enough money by ourselves to do it. But there's a Baptist church five miles this way, and there's one four miles this way, and, and they pulled their funds and they made it happen. There was something wise in that, though, because there was a local church accountability that I think maybe we've lost in our day. In Bible times, Christians gave their tithe to the local church, and in turn, the local church used it to support the ministries of that church, other churches in crisis, missionaries, widows, and orphans. Typically, the missionaries would become self-supporting once they planted a church, unless it was inappropriate to receive funds in the country slash area where they were ministering. Example of that, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said, you know, I could have come and asked you for money, but I didn't want to. So he had other churches that supported him. Why? Because he was in an area where there were these known secular teachers who just preyed on people for money. And Paul wanted to offer the gospel in their minds at no cost. He did not want them to think that he was there for their money. And so on that occasion, he did not. But, but typically, missionaries, they would go into an area, and if they were really called of God and worth their salt, they could lead some people to Christ. They'd start growing in their faith. And after a while, that church would become self-supporting. And really, that's ideally the way it should happen more and more. Uh, typically, the missionaries would become self-supporting, unless that one exception. On the first day of every week, number four, God's tithe is to come into God's gathering place that God's work might be done. The Apostle Paul taught that God wants it done this way. Why? So that no collections be made when I come. The Apostle Paul understood that everything would be taken care of and that there would be no need for, an emergen for any emergency offerings if God's people simply gave God's way. That's how God designed it. God may impress you to give an offering that would be above the 10%, somewhere other than the local church, but clearly the tithe belongs to the local church. I was on the radio some years ago, and a pastor heard me preaching, and he called me from another state, and he said, I just want to thank you. I said, for what? He said, you said today on your radio broadcast that your, the tithe and your listening audience up there in Maine did not belong to search the Scriptures. It belonged to the local church. He said, that was refreshing. He said, that was so encouraging because sometimes all these parachurch organizations are praying on the local assembly, and the local assembly really can't function the way it's supposed to function. And they can't reach their communities and minister in the way that God's called them to minister. Offerings above the tithe are seen in the material goods. For instance, this is one example, that the Israelites supplied in offerings for the construction of the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, all, And all the skillful men who were performing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work which he was performing. And they said to Moses, The people are bringing much more than enough for the construction work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command, and a proclamation was circulated throughout the camp, saying, Let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contributions of the sanctuary. We got too much. Stop. <laughs> You don't hear that too often, do you? Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. 
for the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for the work, for all the work to perform it. That's an example of an offering that was not dictated before the law, during the law, or after the law. It was an example of an offerings above the tithe are seen and the care uh, in providing food and housing, for instance, for traveling teachers and evangelists in the early church. Good example, 3 John chapter 5. 3 John 5. Let me read 3 John 5 and 6. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. So in the early church, many guys just went off in faith, and they'd come to a town, and the believers in that town would recognize that they were men of God, and so they would take care of them and support them and encourage them and sometimes send them off in a manner worthy of the call that God had laid on their life. That was an offering. That was above and beyond the tithe. Question, point C there on your outline, does giving as God prospers invalidate the tithe? You will hear this sometimes. People will say, well, you give as you prosper. And so we need to ask, does giving as God prospers invalidate the tithe? Some argue that we are to give differing percentages based on the statement found in 1 Corinthians 16.2 that we give as God may prosper us. Paul said on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. This statement of giving as he may prosper must be interpreted in the context of the rest of the Bible. So if you have no increase, and many in the early church had zero increase because of persecution. And Paul didn't put them on some guilt trip. If you had no increase, you are not expected to tithe, though you are certainly not prohibited from giving. An example of that is in 2 Corinthians 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. These were people in deep poverty, Paul says, and they want to help. And this, not as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So giving as God prospers does not determine if we tithe, but how large our tithe may be, because we're not expected to all have the same tithe. Think your way through this. This really, tithing is an expression of just how faithful and just God is. Think about it. If a person makes a dollar this week, maybe a child, and they earn a dollar, when our children earned a dollar, we'd ask them, what is a tithe? It'd say 10 cents. Then 10 cents is a tithe. If he makes $100, then $10 is a tithe. If he makes $1,000, then $100 is a tithe. Tithing, as God may prosper you, makes everyone equal in God's economy of giving. It's really a beautiful thing to consider. The person who gives a tithe of $10, which would be a dollar, or a tithe of $100, which would be 10 if that was their increase, 
they can experience the same amount of blessing and joy. Both can lay up just as much treasure in eternity future. God has a way of keeping everything just and fair in his economy of giving. So it's not like, you know, you get some increase and God puts some money in your hands. And, and I, I tithe off of any increase I get in any realm. I, I sold a piece of what I considered junk, but it was a treasure of the person who bought it. And I tithed off of that. Someone gave me a gift card for my birthday. I tithe, I tithe off of every increase that God puts in my hand. But, you know, when you, when you give, it's not like, mm, what do I give this week? Yeah, I feel like $10. No, this is a $20 week. It's not just like this nebulous, what do I do? God gave us some guidelines. Now, we're not done yet. Stay with me. In fact, sometimes the poor person, like the widow who gave her two mites, can store up even more. She gave not simply a tithe, but she gave an offering. In fact, she gave all that she had. You remember when Jesus recounted this in Mark's gospel? And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people, they were kind of like offering containers on the outside. Josephus describes them like... um, uh, funnel-shaped horns as you walked into the temple and you, you deposited your, your, your tithe into the horns as you came in. And so you could see it happening. And of course, uh, it was, it's been said that the Pharisees would take large denominations and then translate them into smaller denominations to make a lot of noise, quote-unquote, tooting their own horn when they um, uh, gave the money. So anyway, he was observing rich people putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Now, we say the widow's might. It's the widow's mites, plural, okay, just so we're clear. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned and all that she had to live on. Her example reminds me that giving is not simply an issue of percentages, but an issue of the heart as the Spirit can direct us in our offerings too. It's not, oh, I'm giving my 10%, that's it. And we need to be sensitive to the Spirit of God. Sometimes he'll prompt us to give above the tithe. And every person is different in, in that realm and God entrusts different amounts to different people. Let's go to Roman numeral, the next Roman numeral. God has a specific purpose in giving a tithe. Tithing involves a definite purpose. It involves a definite purpose. And let's think through that for a moment. Again, Malachi 3.10 says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. The purpose is that there might be enough to do for what needs to be done. That's the plan, that there might be food in my house. God's way of raising money for his work is not to get the world to come in and to give to the Lord's work. Oh, let's everybody bring their junk down to the church next Saturday, and we're going to have a big bazaar and sell all our junk and, uh, so that we can finance the needs of the church. It's not how God does it. You don't bring in the world to underwrite the world's, God's work. God's way is for God's people to bring their tithe 
that there might be food in God's house. One financial ministry was actually crowned financial when Larry Burkett was alive, calculated that if every member in evangelical churches were on welfare but tithed, the income of the average church would double. The average Christian, by the way, the average evangelical Christian gives 3% of his income. And so in these churches where they teach grace giving, they do not teach tithing. They support very few missionaries. I mean, how how are we able to support hundreds of missionaries? Because we teach tithing. And we need to support hundreds more. They're always struggling. Oh, but we teach grace giving. And if you teach grace giving, people will be motivated to give more. Not true. And the statistics show it. B, when you tithe, God will renew your faith. He renews your faith. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. God wants you to test or to prove his faithfulness. Now, the Bible warns us not to test God with rash or evil deeds to see if he will punish us. Just a couple verses later in Malachi 3, 13 to 15, God says, don't test me. But in this thing, you test him. Jesus said to the devil, quoting Deuteronomy, you're not to test the Lord your God. But in this thing, God said, test him. The Bible warns us not to test God, but there, here in Malachi, God, in essence, says, put me to the test. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Just watch what will happen. Now, I will put a qualification on that, that there's some parameters that this principle doesn't work if you're violating some other things in your own personal life or in finance. So it, it's not like this is just silver bullet. I start tithing this week and, and all my needs are going to be abundantly met beyond anything I can ask or think. No, there's the whole package and there's a number of factors, so you need to stay for the whole course. <laughs> when you tithe, God will rebuke the devourer. He'll rebuke the devourer. That's what he says in the next verse. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground. Nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. If you were a farmer, the devourer might be locusts or too much rain or too little rain or the vine shedding their fruit prematurely. This is a reversal of the curse described in Malachi 3.9. The curse was an expression of God's love, of his discipline, You've heard my sermon on the text. However, God is not speaking just to farmers. He's speaking to lawyers and professors and builders and preachers and businessmen and plumbers. This command in Malachi must be put in the context of repentance. By the way, that's the theme all the way through Malachi. The prophet comes and says, God says this. And the people say, you're not talking about us, are you, God? And the prophet comes back, you better believe I am. And he does that six times all the way through Malachi. God knows that when we rob him, we rob ourselves. Listen to what the apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. 
And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's a principle applies in a lot of realms of life. Evangelism, here the context, of course, is giving. But by the way, if you just, you know, invite one person to church this year, they might come. By the way, I was so proud of one of our young men last Sunday. He, he built a relationship with a guy who comes by his work all the time and invited him to church, and the guy came. And he sat with him in church. And he was in the second service on Sunday, and he said, would you like to go to meet the pastor over in Bluffton? Sure. And he drove all the way over to Bluffton, meet the pastor. He's the only guy I had for meet the pastor. And he received Christ. Now, listen, if you, if you, you know, invite one guy to church, maybe they'll come. You invite 50 people to church, you'll probably get five that will come. You sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. It's true in every realm. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So God will often bless the generous giving of a saint, so that he can give more. That's the theme here. To give simply to get would be selfish, and sadly, this is a major theme of prosperity theology. I should probably do a whole section on that, but I won't. It will raise my blood pressure too much. <laughs> the moment our giving is motivated by getting, then it ceases to be motivated by love. We give where we started because God first gave to us, and then he can bless. God may keep some expenses from you because you did not rob him. That doesn't mean the car will never break, but maybe it won't break. We live in a fallen world. You know, roofs leak and cars break, but, but sometimes, you know, there are things that God just holds things together when they should have worn out a long time ago. But do not expect God to bless if you are tithing, if you are tithing and you are lazy, or if you serve in some ungodly business, or if you will step out of the will of God. Years ago, a man came into my office, and there was kind of a bet going back on at Pearlstein Distributors, because they were convinced that I was going to tell him he should keep his job. And he was making a very handsome sum. And he wanted me to know what I thought he should do. I said, you're involved in the distribution of alcohol, helping making people drunk. Woe to you who gives his neighbor to drink to make him drunk. You are in the business of helping people to become drunk. And you're asking me what I think you should do? You should quit. Then he told me that all these guys back there said, no, the pastor won't tell you to quit because he's going to want your tithe. Of course, I called a brother in our church, and he hired him. <laughs> Praise the Lord. He had a job. <sighs> Where are we? 
9. Tithing must be put in the context of obeying God's known will. Obeying God's known will. Look, if you're out of the will of God, sometimes God disciplines through finances. You can be tithing to your blue in the face. But those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. When you tithe, God will restore your testimony. He'll restore your testimony. Listen to what He says. In all the nations, the na- nations here is the goyim, the Gentiles, the, the, the non-Jews will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts. God is telling the Hebrews, I will give you a story to tell. I will give you a testimony to lost people around you. Many Christians today are a bad testimony in the realm of finances because they're robbing God, and they are experiencing the truth of Haggai 1.6. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied, and he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. I remember years ago talking to a brother, and he, he loved Christ as much as he could, I suppose but he didn't tithe. Now, I don't check his records. He told me he didn't tithe. He told me he believed in grace giving. And then one day, his landlord calls me. He says he hadn't paid me in three months. So I confronted this brother, and we did a little research, and he had a track record of renting for somebody for a while and then stiffing them the last three months and moving on to the next place. What a terrible testimony. And some Christians, they don't pay their bills on time. They owe people money that they shouldn't owe their money on. And when the unbelieving world looks at them, they throw up. Haggai, who is a contemporary of Malachi, said, you have sown much, but you harvest little. You eat. But there's not enough to be satisfied, and he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. God tells us in Proverbs 11.25, 11.25, the generous man will be prosperous. Literally, the Hebrew says he'll be made fat, and he who waters will himself be watered. Okay, let's talk about some other perspectives on New Testament giving. When we are to give, we are to give in secret. We're to give in secret. We're going to finish. Suck it up here and stay with me now, okay? When Jesus addressed spiritual practices to be done in secret, he did not begin each of his three examples with if you give, if you pray, if you fast, but rather when you give, when you pray, when you fast. He took it for granted that his disciples would do these things in such a way as not to be honored or to be seen or to be noticed by men in that order for those three. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Please understand, Jesus is not teaching that we should not plan our giving or utilize offering envelopes any more than he's telling us to close our eyes when we write our check. I mean, think about what he says here. When you give, but when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
good stewardship would force you to know to know precisely how much you give, just as the elders of the local assembly must know precisely how much they give to every ministry this church supports. Although you keep your giving secret from others, you cannot keep it secret from God because Jesus said, your Father who sees in secret will repay you. We ought to be satisfied with having God as our only audience. That's what he's underscoring here. God needs to be our only audience. When Jesus said that in giving to God's work, you are not to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, he's concerned with our motivation involving the hidden thoughts of the heart. We should not seek the praise of men, but nor should we be self-conscious because our self-consciousness can easily deteriorate into self-righteousness. So fall in our, our, our hearts that it's possible to take deliberate steps not to be seen by men, and yet in the secret recesses of our heart to gloat in a spirit of self-congratulation. It's possible to turn an act of giving into an act of vanity so that our principal motivation for giving is not the furtherance of God's kingdom, but gloating in a distorted egotism. Jesus uses this Jewish idiom to underscore that the issue is not so much what your hand is doing, but what your heart is thinking. That's the point of the idiom. For instance, when you write a check to the church, your heart may be thinking one of three things. Either we're seeking the praise of men such that our goal is somehow to make known how much we gave, or we preserve our anonymity, but quietly congratulate ourselves, or our only desire is the approval of our Father who is in heaven. We're not to be like the Pharisees who took a legitimate religious practice and made it into a piece of make-believe, so that it, like an actor on a stage, and hypocritos is what Jesus called them. It literally means a play actor. So that like an actor on a stage, the people watching might applaud them. How many Christians give to set the, get their name on a building or on a pew or on a piece of stained glass window? How many give, and I'm not saying that if you've bought a stained glass window or a pew, you're in sin or anything. I'm just, it's just an issue here of motivation, all right? How many give to get their name as a subscriber to a good cause in order to boost their egos? To use a familiar phrase, which really comes out of the Gospels, we like to blow our own trumpet. And so the only reward we get is the praise of men and the appropriate evaluation due at the judgment seat of Christ. God evaluates our deeds, motivation, everything, someday at the judgment seat of Christ to see how he will reward us throughout all of eternity. When we give, we are to give systematically. The Bible teaches we are to give systematically. We are to give systematically because biblically God commands us to do so. It is a command. We are to give systematically because no doubt God knows practically that bills are paid that way. And most importantly, it serves as a reminder that, we, that all that we own is God's. And so we are to worship him by putting him first. 
bring this tithe to the place the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored and eat there in his presence. We talked about that and that whole eating ceremony, what that meant if you were here a few weeks back. This applies to your tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil, and the firstborn males of your flocks and herds. The purpose of tithing is to teach you always to fear the Lord your God. We talked about different ways in which men and women fear God, if you were here earlier for that. When we give, we are to give cheerfully. We're to give cheerfully. The word for cheerful in the Greek is hilarion, from which we get our English word hilarious. God loves a cheerful. He loves a hilarious giver. Oh, I got to give. Oh, no. It's not supposed to be that way. Each one of you must do as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We don't have to give. We get to give. Our attitude is to be one of excitement. D, when we give, we are to give out of our love for God, out of our love for God. Jesus said, if we love him, we will keep his commandments, John 14, 21. And John says his commandments are not burdensome. It's a joy. It's a joy to obey the Lord. And your heart is filled with joy when you're walking in obedience. If you're an old sour grump, it might be that there's just some areas that in your life that God needs to deal with. Obedience brings joy. When you love someone, you will do anything for that person. And one way our love for God is expressed is by obedience and giving to his kingdom. So when we give, we give cheerfully, uh, we give out of our love for God, and then we are to give generously. We are to give generously. Listen to what Paul said, those who are rich are to be ready to share. Let me read 1 Timothy 6. Instruct them, talking about rich people in the context, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. He, he prefaces that statement uh, here in 1 Timothy 6. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Some people, rich is a relative term, I know. But some people are just entrusted by God with larger amounts of wealth. And sometimes they come into the Christian faith that way. Sometimes it happens after they're saved because God knows that they can handle it when most of us cannot. But the temptation, if God has entrusted much to us, is that we be conceited. <laughs> I had a 1967 Volkswagen I was in college, and I was sitting in a light in Worcester, Massachusetts. The running boards were rotted off, rust running up the side. And this guy pulled up in this beautiful brand-new Mercedes, and he looked over at me, and he just started laughing. Now, I hope that was not a laughter of conceit. But sometimes, if we have much, we can become conceited. And Paul says, guard yourself of that. The median, now let's think about this. You say, well, I guess I'm not rich, so that doesn't apply to me. The median annual household income worldwide is $9,733. The median personal income 
is 29.20. So you get in some houses for people who are working and so forth. Where in the U.S., the median household income is 62,000, some change, and the median personal income is 31,000. That's of, as of uh, last year. And so by the world's standards, comparatively speaking, even the poorest of Americans are rich. You know, I go to Western countries sometimes, you know, I've, many of you have been to, you know, England and Austria and some of these places, and and they're not, you know, like third world countries. But they don't live like us. God has blessed America beyond any nation. And I believe the reason he did is because for 150 years, we wanted to take the gospel of his son around the world. And now we don't have time. And it's going to implode. American Christians have been given much, so have been given so much, and so we will be held accountable for much. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required, and to whom they have entrusted, they will ask more. Let's talk about the results of our giving. When we give, we lay up treasure in heaven. In Matthew 6, he speaks of the durability of two treasures. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. As we consider Jesus' instructions, it's important that we first consider what Jesus is not forbidding. Let's talk about what he's not forbidding. He is certainly not forbidding the ownership of private property. Deuteronomy 5.21, you shall not covet. What's implied in coveting? That someone else owns property. And so this movement, I don't know if the Drudge Report was correct last week, they said now one-fourth of Americans would be in favor of socialism. Socialism is an anti-God, anti-biblical principle. God teaches labor, where you own things, so much so that someone could covet the things that you own, so much so that someone could break the commandment, thou shalt not steal, if you don't own it, and everybody owns it, nobody could steal it. I mean, there's just so much nonsense today um, that is, is, is going on. So he's not forbidding the ownership of private property. He is not forbidding saving. We'll talk about that. We're going to have the whole next section is on saving and investing. However, Jesus does forbid the selfish accumulation of goods, that is, treasure for yourselves. In a word, laying up treasure on earth is not a prohibition against being provident, but against being covetous. And there's a big difference, and we'll explore this further in the savings section. It is not an issue of what you have, but how you use what you have and how you view what you have. Is that your house, or is that God's house? It is not what you possess, it's what possesses you. Paul told the Philippians when they gave to the Lord's work, they were increasing their heavenly portfolio. He said they were laying up treasure in heaven, basically, in Philippians 4.17. He said, I'm not seeking the gift itself, I'm seeking the credit to your account. We are not to put our hope in the uncertainty of riches, we are to lay up a good foundation for the future. 
In the parable of the unrighteous steward, Jesus taught us to make eternal friends by the way we use earthly riches. And we studied that parable already. B, when we give, needs in the body of Christ are met. 2 Corinthians 8, for if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there might be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack." So in these verses, Paul does not suggest that those who have been blessed by God with much become poor by giving it all away, that they might become rich. The Bible does not teach that. And don't distort the parable, or not the parable, but the encounter with the rich young ruler. Paul writes to the Gentile churches who were enjoying material wealth while the believers in Judea were suffering. There was a great persecution that came across the church there in Judea. So knowing, too, that the situation could be reversed, that there could be a time when the Jewish believers would be assisting the Gentiles, he asked them, the Gentiles, to give. That's what he's asking them to do. The Apostle Paul saw equality in the whole procedure and that the Gentiles were enriched spiritually by the Jews. They led them to Christ. They taught them the Scriptures. So the Jews should be enriched material, materially by the Gentiles. That same principle is taught in Romans 15. To illustrate his principle, the Apostle Paul quotes Exodus 16, 18, where he is referencing the miracle of the manna. Most of you know that biblical text. Those who tried to hoard the manna discovered they could not because it bred worms and became foul. You collected too much? The overamount just rotted. Those who trusted what God said and picked up only a one-day supply, they had all that they needed. And so Paul uses that Old Testament illustration to drive home a New Testament principle. The principle that Paul wants the church at Corinth to understand is that we are not to hoard God's blessings, but simply trust Him and obey His Word. Trust and obey, there's no other way, right, to be happy in Jesus, to trust and obey. Okay, we're coming in for a landing. I'm almost done. To whom should we give? We're to give to the local church. We've established that. The local church, in turn, should be supporting those who lead the church and minister the Word of God to them. The local church should also aid the poor, which we do, those who are true widows, which we do, and orphans, which we do. We've started a number of orphanages, this church, and many of you have participated in that. The local church should also be involved in the support of missionaries, which we do and traveling teachers slash evangelists, which we do on occasion. Those who should give, everyone could give, everyone can give, such that even the being poor is not an excuse not to give. And we cited the example from the Corinthians, or in 2 Corinthians where he quotes the Macedonians. Some individuals have the gift of giving. The gift of giving is the ability to give far beyond a tithe. And God gives that gift to some people. Uh, J.C. Penney was said to have given 90% of his income. He was a godly man. It's not a godly organization today. In fact, I think it's going to fold up and bankrupt here soon. But those who do not have this gift cannot use it 
as an excuse not to give. Everyone can give. It's just like I can't say I don't have to show mercy to people in physical need because I don't have the gift of mercy. No, we're all called to show mercy. I can't say, well, I'm not to be a servant and care for serving needs because I don't have the gift of serving. No, he that would be great among you must be the servant of all. So gifts do not diminish responsibilities. God expects you to give out of your increase, out of your increase. If there's no increase, one guy came up to me, he said, I've been out of a job for six months. I feel kind of guilty because I can't give. I said, what are you guilty about? If God hasn't put anything in your hand, you don't have to give. Now, God may lead you to give. I'm not saying God can't, but he's not expecting you necessarily. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. Some additional aspects to consider as you give. First, determine if those whom you are giving are believers. Just don't assume it. I remember uh, I had a roommate in college, and he said, yeah, I want to give to this fund called the Christian, uh, what was it called? Christian Children's Fund. I said, is it Christian? And they had this actor who I knew who didn't strike me as a Christian who was promoting the organization. Well, as it turns out, we wrote the organization, and they weren't Christian at all. But they were using the name Christian Children's Fund to get saps who didn't do their research. And in their own documents at the time, this was back in the 1970s, they wrote that, you know, we, we don't try to convert Buddhists or Muslims, and if they want to believe that, we have no problem with that, and da 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 so he and I, we both adopted independently, you know, a child with compassion. We've had children, our family with compassion since, since I was single. Uh, they're a good organization because they preach the gospel as they feed the poor. But make sure they're believers. Don't assume it. Those to whom you give should operate with integrity, with integrity. Know to whom you are giving and what they are doing with the money. If an organization or church does not have a budget, giving a breakdown of how the funds are used is because they usually have something to hide. Any ministry that has integrity will answer your questions and can document their answers. Any member could go into our financial secretary, I want to see missions, I want to see this particular missionary. She'll click on it and it will show a breakdown of every single check, when it was given, how, how many years it's been given, and so forth. Those to whom you give should keep you informed about their ministry. Just the Apostle Paul kept the Philippians informed about his. Uh, when we take on a missionary, we, they sign a document. One of the things they do is they agree at least four times a year to communicate with us. Common reasons people do not give to the Lord's work. They've never been saved, never been born again. They're constantly increasing their lifestyle. Oh, I just got a $20,000 pay raise. I guess I'll increase my lifestyle $20,000. When is enough enough? They're poor stewards and do not operate on a budget. We'll talk about the biblical aspects of planning or budgeting we call it today. They're self-centered. Sometimes they're in financial bondage because of debt. We have a whole big section on debt, and it's a huge problem today in America. They always perceive others' needs they have as more pressing. 
other needs they have is more pressing. They do not have an eternal perspective. So some application, maybe evaluate your giving habits, ask yourself, does it really match with Scripture? And then, you know, what, what are we going to do about it? All right, let me, let me pray. Thank you for your patience. We got through a lot of material. Uh, section one, I'm rewriting this course. It grew 40 pages from the last time I taught it. So, but that's okay. I want it to be in depth, and I want you to be able to, uh, in myself, to benefit together. Now, our Father, again, we are so grateful that you've not left us clueless, that you address so many issues in the realm of money. And we think of the fact that your son in half of his parables, when measuring a person's spiritual condition, dealt with the subject of money. Now, we are in different places, and some are new to the faith, and I recognize that, Father. And, and some who are, will listen to this course, even years later, should Christ tarry, they may feel a sense of, I've messed up so bad, but thank you that you meet us right where we are at, that even if we have adopted the world's way of finances, that you can begin to change it one step at a time, one day at a time. And we ask it now in Jesus' name, amen.